Pleasure. Thanks for coming How are out. You? I'm good. I'm rolling some tape for our B-roll amazement. Yeah. Um, good place to do it. Yeah. Thanks for being late because I was just sitting here. It's lovely, isn't and it? And it's just so incredible. I come to the spa here. But I'm here because of you. You know, I didn't. Oh, I had yay. no idea where I was gonna stay in town. Town, and since you were here. Oh, so you're staying on this side. Yeah. You're staying here. Yeah. I'm staying right here. Are the rooms nice? Yeah. Uh, well, you, you're about to find out. You nice. Tell me. They're, they're, yeah, they're good. I mean, so I got an order for Dawa. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're going to drink? Mm -hmm. All right. So let's let's go ahead and see if we can get a couple of those going. All right. Hi. How are you? It's good to see you. And you. Okay, Sante, have a good day. So these are for the meal and these are for the drink. Okay. I think we just want two dawas. Two dawas. Yeah. Yeah, sure, it's there. So. Yeah. Okay, thanks. With rum. With rum. Not vodka. Yeah. yeah. We do drum. Yeah. Okay. Where should I serve you? Uh, we'll be in room three. Room three. Yeah, on the patio. It's okay, no problem. Okay. Nice. All right. Perfect. Here we can get get to the spot from out here. Oh. Um, um, all right. I think we're going to make a hot dawa. What is a hot dawa? It's it's a dawa is, you can make dawa. The one that you have, that was the one that we kind of invented like as a cocktail. Yeah. And then there's the other one that's like, it's like a, it's like a tea, but you can put alcohol in there. Oh, so it's like a hot toddy. Yeah, it's like a hot toddy. Is that all right? That's perfect. Okay. I mean, it's not so cold here, but I'm just through to the yes, end. What do you mean it's not so cold? We're in our winter. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I'm trying to think of a more pleasant winter. temperature or, yeah. Yes, this is a re-release of my 2019 Nairobi kickoff episode, which was the first of five episodes from that great city, most of which have not been yet freely available. Never fear, though, there's a certain timelessness to chatting about the weather, but that pleasant chill in the air in Nairobi in early summer, that is at the heart of everything we're going to be talking about over these five episodes in Kenya. That cool climate, it seems, was Nairobi's original sin, the thing that first drew British civil engineers to build a rail depot here in 1899. Pity the poor colonizer, who had been trying to subjugate so many peoples in the unbearable heat. Here at more than 5,800 feet above sea level, way higher even than Denver, the air is dewy and lovely, and it makes perfect sense that it would make for an appealing home base for your average gin-soaked sadist from Old Blighty, looking to queen over all of East Africa. So, Nairobi was born, a European city. And this whole region of East Africa became known as the White Highlands, where the land was stolen from the Maasai and Kikuyu with such vigor and arrogance that, of course, you had a string of revolts and massacres and rebellions and then the Mau Mau uprising and finally a free Nairobi capital city of the independent Republic of Kenya. Its airport was built in part by Mau Mau prisoners held by the British in ghastly conditions, and today the airport is named after freedom fighter and first president Jomo Kenyatta. That is just the first taste for any arriving visitor of the conflicting strands of DNA that weave around each other throughout this city. My first attempt to untangle it all starts with Wanuri Kahu. When we put Nairobi on the calendar, she was the first person we thought of having on the show. When she said she lives in Karen, a particularly green district of Nairobi with a view of the Gong Hills, that's where I decided to stay. She 
She's a leader that way. She communicates this sense of humor and lightness mixed with an intimate moral urgency. If you are a fan of film and disturbed by censorship, you'll know her film Rafiki, the first Kenyan movie to ever screen at the Cannes Film Festival, even as it was banned by the Kenyan authorities back home for reasons relating to, as they called it, gayism. But as you'll hear in this episode, the fights that she fought with Rafiki are still ongoing in the country, and so are her triumphs, which will be coming with more of that quiet and effective force to your favorite streaming platform soon. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Why is that such a common question? What is that breakfast question? Um, I, what did I have for breakfast? I had porridge. Porridge? I had, yeah, I had uh, uh, sour millet porridge with spice. What kind of spice? Mm, cardamom, cinnamon, mm, brown sugar, and uh, yeah. And, uh, but the, the, the porridge flour is made from millet. Made from millet. Yeah. Which gives it. And then they, and then they sour it somehow. So it's like sour millet porridge. Damn. And then I like to put um, coconut milk and, and, and spice in. That sounds like, you know, porridge is usually this just bland. That's what it's supposed to be. It sounds like you're going in an opposite direction. Oh, my gosh. No, I discovered porridge. I've been discovering porridge all my life, I think. <laughs> it's a process of continual rediscovery. It's, honestly, like my grandmother's porridge was the best porridge in the whole world. It was the best, 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 best porridge and then I lived in Mombasa for a while, and then I, I, I tasted the porridge in Mombasa, and then that was the best, and I started feeling guilty about liking another porridge more than my grandmother's. Really? <laughs> yes. Did you have a chance? Is your grandmother still with us? Could no. You, oh, I'm sorry. No, so, so you, she couldn't like, even taste it. Yeah, you couldn't even, like, get her on board. Huh? No. You couldn't say, do it, do it like that, but yeah. also a little bit like Mombasa. Yeah. You're still living out in uh, Mombasa, or no? No, You're, you're here, here full-time. Mm. Uh-huh. I'm Nairobi based. Why was what was that dalliance with the coast? I've always wanted to live at the coast. I feel like the coast is just a super magical, wonderful. Can't, I can't even explain. Mombasa is just like it's it's beautiful. It's one of my. It's like going to the coast is the Kenyan coast is my happy place. Always has been. Yeah. And the Indian Ocean and the beaches and the coast on on the south coast and the north coast are the, the most beautiful beaches anywhere I've ever seen. Damn. Um, All right, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing up here I know, in the hills? <laughs> I know. So yeah, Mombasa is where it's at. Diani is where it's at. So I just, I try and spend as much time as possible. So for a while I thought I could live there. Yeah. I was just like, you know, I can live anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so I moved to Mombasa. Well, you can live anywhere. <laughs> I mean, you can, in yeah, theory. But you can't. But, but you can't. Yeah. Mombasa is super small. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's, it, was small, it was small for what I needed to do. So I was constantly like jumping on like uh, an extra flight to just to get out yeah. of Mombasa. Into opportunity. Into life yeah. Yeah, and work. Yeah, I'm going to pull a Thomas Friedman on you. I, uh, I was talking to my cab driver, right. and he was from Mombasa. Yeah. He was saying the same thing. It's like everybody he grew up with is living in Nairobi now because yeah. it's nice and there's no jobs. But that's, I mean, you know, I guess L.A. maybe is an exception. I don't know. Like, although the people there are trying to make it not nice. Um, <laughs> but, they, you know, beautiful places, great beach, never have good jobs. There's never enough. No, uh, there's never enough. You, you always got to go back to some... 
you know, godforsaken place like New York uh, to get your work done. Um, okay, so... I keep uh, on saying, actually, whenever people say, where are you from? Like, if I'm visiting LA and people say, where are you from? I'm always like, the other East Coast. <laughs> Is that true? You're an East yeah. Coaster? No, yeah, because no, I because so. yeah, Kenya's uh, the other East Coast. And you're from the Great Lakes. Does that work too? <laughs> no, no, kinda. Kinda. If I was, yeah. Um, I don't know. Isn't this uh, all right? So you're an East Coaster. Um, I mean, Kenya being on the East Coast. Yeah. In yeah, but not uh, like a proper East Coaster would still be Mombasa again. Yeah. The default. How far back? So you were born and raised in Nairobi. Yeah. Um, but then, speaking of hopping on a flight to get into life, you you hopped out pretty young into yeah. university. Even before that, like uh, the last two years of high school, I did them um, in in the UK. Uh huh. Mm, what so. was that like for you? That's the, when I realized I was black. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't it's, know. It's, it's a hard then. thing to figure out here. I didn't. In I truly. I didn't know. Wow. I didn't know it. I, I, unlike now, I hadn't heard of it. I wasn't having race conversations with my parents. I'm having race conversations with my children now. Um, I just, I, it, it was, I just, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. Tribe was a thing. Yeah. And we were trying to get over that and, you know. Right. Uh, but uh, race wasn't a thing. I remember I had a white auntie and she was like, you know, like different. <laughs> She's just like the odd person out. <laughs> like, I have a white auntie uh, yeah. Suzanne. Oh and I God. was like, wow, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's just because she was different. It's a long way to go to, to, uh, to learn that lesson. But that is, yeah, yeah I, I suppose if there's, uh, if there's something that we, this is no silver lining, but it doesn't take long to learn about blackness in the states I'm, you know no. we uh i don't want to date this but i was just just before you got here i was uh watching tanahasi coates uh gave testimony in front of congress about reparations oh. today or oh, yesterday oh i didn't see that it was amazing and you know i've you know he has like these very um these very like holistic ways of looking at the whole stretch of history mm. that we have in the states and mm. it is like I don't know. It's just put me in a in a in a mood because he also was raising a kid who, talking about having those conversations, mm -hmm. just like it's like a very large part of parenting in his life at mm -hmm. least is like having those conversations about how and and here you never had to. No, and we still don't. And the only reason I'm having those conversations is because of what people what's happening to people at large, not necessarily to what's happening to people in Kenya. So they can understand the bullshit that's Absolutely. happening in the UK, yeah, in the states, and in the yeah. Yeah, this is what your global perspective, this is how yeah. we live here, but this is the global perspective. Yeah. Yeah, this is what's happening to black. I mean, and my children, I'm having, I'm, I'm trying to to find, uh, it's not even the tone, just the right way to start having conversations. But if I do get upset, yeah, I don't hide it from them. Like if I feel like there's a sense of injustice, I don't hide it from them. But I just... I just try and, 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 and say it in a way that they would understand. How do you, you know, because I think in, in a lot of the films that you make, you're creating, and some of them I'm thinking of Pumsy in particular, you're creating a, a world that doesn't exist, right? It's sort of a futuristic, mm. you know, model that you get to decide, you know, the different parts that go into it. How do you, how do the characters think and talk about blackness there? It's... Well, it's it's interesting. The conversation about race in, in Pumzi was very accidental. How's that? Because when I wrote the film, it was cast all black. And then one on the on the day of the shoot, the person who was meant to be the cleaner dropped out. 
So we had to recast it on that morning. And there was a white actress who was available. Huh. And then she became the cleaner. And then people started like adding to it. They'd be like, yeah, you know, she's the white person's the cleaner. And all the black people are not. Right. And I was just like, okay, if yeah. that's how you want to read into it. That's cool. But it wasn't a conversation about race. It was still a conversation. For me, the biggest conversation has always been class. Yeah. It's never been race. Because I think race is aggravated by class. You know what I mean? And I'm talking about class in Kenya and in, a, in an African perspective. My conversations have mostly been about class because that's, the, that's what I've seen. Right. And that's what I've experienced. But in other places, race is the one that is most, it's like, it's so much more. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, but actually, you know, that's part of this debate that we're having that I hope we continue to have. And I hope it doesn't die in subcommittee uh, as, it, as it well might in the States. I think at its best, it's not a moral conversation about, you know, loving your fellow man or something. But it's a very technical conversation about what's been taken. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, that's, and, and the, the, the money that's been taken. And yeah. the reason why, you know, the I, I think the average household worth in the states of an African American family is like ten percent of the average white family. Like that's a yes. so when you talk about class, like that's everything that we think we know about race comes from theft. Yeah, you know, and like the kind of outcropping of that. So it's interesting that that for you, I guess that is sort of, I mean, that plays out here in the same way. Those are the conversations that are still dominating. Um, even in a completely African kind of context yeah. in your films. Yeah, it becomes a conversation about access, right? Access to health, access to schools, access to safety, access to lighting, access to uh, like water. It's yeah. super basic. Access to democracy. And I think that w that's why I think that there's, there's just so many layered conversations about democracy now as a result, because if you don't have access to your basic needs. As people don't, not only here, but also in America, then what are you voting for? You're, you're voting for your basic needs. Yeah. You're not exercising your right to democracy. You're exercising your right to survival. You're voting for security, the person who's going to, who's going to just guarantee you your basic human rights. So I've always had like a really complicated relationship with like when we're choosing how to vote, what are we really thinking about, especially if you're in, in a space that um, your, just your necessities have been grabbed? Right. You know? And yet people seem to continue to vote in ways that will, well, I mean, that's sort of the... But the, they were voting for what they, they, I think the people were voting for what they needed, a sense of security, yeah. a sense of basic things. To feel, it, it really comes to feeling whole. There's a lot of like, and I feel like one of the things that we keep missing out, which is so important, especially when it comes to politics, is, is emotional intelligence. Because huh. the way people are voting, they're not voting necessarily with how you think and da, da, da. You're, you're voting for, your, for how you feel or how this person is going to make you feel or how they're going to enrich your life in some sort of a way, which seems more about emotional intelligence than it does about what you know I, I wonder if we could educate i mean obviously you know these two countries that you've been connected to overseas have lost a damn mind recently you know i think although what you're saying maybe they lost their heart i don't know like it's true it's not an intellectual thing it's not an intellectual thing how do we how do you do like voter education that you know lets people get it in touch <laughs> without their feeling like you you're voting mad but let's talk about that feeling why are you so angry? yeah why are you so angry <laughs> How I mean, can I make you feel better? Seriously. What makes you feel better? 
Oh, but I think they're saying, I think they're telling us, and I think think, it's not what we want to hear. It's probably that as well. What would make me really feel better (laughs) is kicking 100,000 Polish dentists out of the UK, you know? that's that's the oh, thing. My. Well, since we're on such great topics, I'll deflect from from all of our problems in the uh, in the West and mm. and get right into uh, get right into the decision here four weeks ago. Yeah, which was crazy. I was just reading. Um, so the the context, obviously, which our listeners should totally know, of course, is Rafiki was, I think, maybe your highest profile film. Um, it was the first Kenyan film to be an official selection at Cannes. Yeah. It, it made uh, news all around the world, not just for being a great film, but then for having been banned by the, what is it, the Kenyan Film Classification, classification Board. Board, which talk about uh, dystopian futures. It's got a great title uh, <laughs> in the lead <laughs> for that. But I was reading about um, their decision back then to, to not allow the film to be screened here in Kenya, and some of the language sounded a lot like the recent Supreme Court ruling in Kenya, um, which upheld the the criminality, I guess, of same-sex relationships. It was like a very, you know, it's like the same same people. <laughs> same, they're, they're basically like, hey, we're Kenyan. This is what it means to be Kenyan. No, I, because I reject that. I reject that that's what it means to be Kenyan. Because if we really just think about what it means to be Kenyan, just like if we were to look into the American Constitution as a way of trying to figure out what it means to be American, then that language is not reflected in the Constitution. And that na- language is not reflected in the mottos of Kenya. The mottos of Kenya is peace, love, and unity. Seems pretty simple. I mean, that's right out of a gay pride <laughs> slogan. <laughs> Thank you. They should just have a flag. <laughs> Big old rainbow flag. <laughs> On the monument. Uh, yeah, right. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. And the Constitution is super clear about some of the things that are happening. I mean, the Constitution says, uh, well, I mean, the ruling the, uh, um, that, that stayed the criminalization of same-sex relations was just, first, was incredibly devastating. I remember uh, listening to it, and I, th- I think everybody who was listening for it remembers where they were and remembers. Some people remember when they switched off, turned away. Some people remember, the, but it was just the most devastating ruling. It was the complete denial of people's existence. It was the complete denial of people's existence. I. It was... It was horrific, it was tragic, it was appalling. Like, I, I don't have the language to describe that court ruling. It was incredibly unfortunate. And it that is not what it means to be Kenyan. Those words are not what it means to be Kenyan. I can't describe my country using the same language because it's not that. It's not that. That court ruling was just, it was, it was an image of us showing a lack of empathy. It was us being unkind. It was, it was that version of us, but that's not all the version of us that there is. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that version on, on, a, on such a beautiful, blessed country. In your heart, did you, did you think it would go down this way? That, well, I was, I don't know why I was optimistic. <laughs> But also, I made a film that, I, and I was optimistic that it might not be banned either. So I think I suffer from optimism. Well, this was—I mean, <laughs> I have to say—that was one of the incredible um, where people are damning themselves 
by their own, uh, you know, kind of by their own words and, and judgments. One of the things that was tied up into the reason why the film classification board banned Rafiki was it was too hopeful. It was too hopeful. <laughs> which, it wasn't remorseful enough. Which, you know, it's just a, a, a stunning thing. And I, I remember uh, reading some interviews that you had done at the time. And you're like, I'm an optimistic person. This is the ending that film is going to have. Yeah. You, know? you can't take out the joy. And it was strange because we I had, I had it was, I was, I was in a meeting with the classification board, like, and there was many of them. And the only thing they honed in after an hour's conversation was not the hand-holding, was not the kissing, was not the affectionate touching, was not the long lingering looks, was just the ending is not remorseful enough. And the song at the end is too love song. <laughs> it's too much of a love song, it's too sweet. <laughs> Please remove it. God. That's why I remember the word remorseful so clearly, because it was just, it's, it's, it just it, it it started to redefine my relationship with that word because <laughs> I never thought it would be applied in that way. You can have the movie, just make it remorseful. <laughs> just make everyone regret who they are yeah. and what they've done yeah. and how they got to the end of that film. And, and we'll give you a rating. I, it's stunning. I mean, it's like the, the town that, you know, banned dancing you know or something it's like it just it happens uh, it does happen and you just you know I, you just are always trying to uh well at least i'm trying to figure out what how can these people let these words cross their lips without and not realize that you know whatever path they took in life they are now the people that said there's too much joy in this now we now we quash you know can you imagine a young child when i grow up I'm going to find a piece of joy and I'm going to throttle it. <laughs> I'll suffocate it with remorse. <laughs> I will be the pro-remorse voice in the room. It's a really, uh, I mean, talk about emotional intelligence. You, you want to get those people and they exist in every country. You just want to get them on the couch and say, hey, What happened? Hey, buddy. Yeah, calm down. How did we get here? <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about it? <laughs> oh man! Well, see, there, there it is. Uh, I think, I think you, you know, it's very clear from the way you talk about it, and obviously that just the straight facts of the ruling. It is, it is devastating. It comes after a three-year yeah. court battle and and a you know a millennia of like trying to uh, trying to coexist here, um, but still, you're you're finding. You're finding some joy in this, and you uh, you you have to. But but joy exists whether you want to find it or not, because of the absurdity of life. Like life is so absurd. I have a, an amazing filmmaker friend called Hajuj Kuka, and his first film was called Beats of the Antonov. And Beats of the Antonov was is set like in the Nubia Mountains in Sudan. And there's this scene in the documentary where all these bomber planes come across, just dropping bombs, right? Yeah. And people would jump down these holes and hide there, right? And usually they know, because it happens often enough to know the rhythm of how the bombs land, right? And they usually do, they just drop three at a time. So they listen out for the three. And then they'd, when the third one dropped, they'd just burst out in laughter. 
because they were just like, and then they'd start teasing each other. Oh, I saw the way you were running. You ran like a goat and you fell down. Ha 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 ha. Like it was like, it just became this joyous moment of being alive. So even, even in the midst of war, the absurdity of life is just like, it takes you out of it. And you're just like, what the hell just happened? Because I don't think, I think that there's this illusion that people who live in specific spaces are accustomed to a type of treatment or accustomed to a type of way of life. Like often I'm asked, wasn't I surprised? Yes, I was surprised when my film was banned because I'm not used to it. I'm not, it's not, I'm not accustomed to being mistreated. (laughs) That's not, that's not the reality. And I'm not accustomed to seeing something very plainly written in Kenya constitution about freedom of expression and having that quashed. I'm not, I'm not accustomed to that. And people, in places of war are not accustomed to death. Yeah. It happens because of where they are, but they're not a, it's not something they're just like, mm, well, yeah, you know. I think that it every everything is as is as real as an emotion as anywhere else. And sometimes we kind of like, oh, that place, oh, Syria. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. As if they're used to it. Nobody's used to that. Nobody's used to running from their homes. Nobody's used to ending up under overpasses. Nobody's used to having their children put in cages. Nobody's used to children being taken from them like is happening in America. Nobody is used to that. Nobody becomes used to it. Injustice is not something that becomes familiar or comfortable. Injustice remains uncomfortable, and it should. And it's... it's, uh it's also about these are actions that are done to people. Well, speaking of injustice, now we have to drink. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let me. Uh, this seems like something that you are going to lead me through. Yeah, they made proper dawa. So they've made a proper dawa. What, what does that mean? So adawa is um, hot honey, lemon, ginger, and sometimes turmeric. Oh my God! Yeah, get the get those West Side ladies in LA on this. This could be the next kick, man. Especially <laughs> if it's got that turmeric. Yeah, <laughs> dawa is the truth. Dawa is the is. truth. Um, and right. then you can have, and then you can make it alcoholic. It's it's like you can make it like a Kenyan hot toddy, if you want to add anything to it. Well, listen, it is. Uh, well past five o'clock yeah. in this continent. <laughs> now, you can do this with rum or vodka. Yeah. I'm not sure what kind of rum they gave us. It is like a very sweet rum. Interesting. And is then, it spiced? Yeah, yeah, spiced. It's like mm-hmm. a, they have this rum in Mumbai, in Mumbai the uh, old monk. It's like a, really? I really like it. It's just like, um, it's just super spiced, pretty sweet. <laughs> Nothing rough about it. Hmm. So, all right, so we, we have this sort of the tea, <coughs> the dawa, the rum, you pour in, and then honey. Yes. Oh, my God, this is going to do amazing stuff for our voices, too. <laughs> <laughs> and jet lag. <laughs> and jet lag, well, but yeah, I did, uh, what did I, I got in? I have to say, um, I love Kenya Airways. Well, you did the direct flight from New York. Yeah, yeah. Nice. It's just, it's awesome. It's, um, you know, I've never been to Kenya before, but going, getting places in Africa is 
it sucks. <laughs> it's hard. Have you never been to Kenya before? I've never been. No, this is my first day. Uh, so. Oh my gosh, Karibu! Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. And I mean, this is like, I, I'm. It's I a feel, soft landing. Yeah, I feel like it's okay that I waited because uh, I must be living right or something, or because this has been, this is great. And now I got my dawa, and watch my voice is just gonna yeah mm. melt, melt that voice. Holy shit! That's in, that's got a lot. That's like your yeah. porridge. That's like got spices and <laughs> base and damn. Yeah, hot toddy usually is just like you just taste the hot. Yeah, and then the, like the, the hot ro- lemon. Yeah, yeah, and the lemon, right? Yeah, this is like a. I'm going to say 25 other things happening. Yeah. It could, it's sparkly in your mouth. And now they make a cold cocktail out of this too. Mm-hmm. They make the cold cocktail is just lemon, uh, honey, um, ice, and, and, and vodka. Okay. Mm. No, this is good. This is crazy. Yeah. I'm like now distracted by all the stuff that's happening in the back of my throat, you know? <laughs> See, yeah. so I got to, I got to clear my mind here. Mm. Honey, lemon, ginger, turmeric. Yeah. Oh, brother. Nice job. Thank you for uh, making that the recommended drink here. All right. Well, we were, we were talking about the uncomfortableness of injustice. I guess you know that that people don't really get, they don't get used to it. Um, and it is amazing how it's the easiest thing to see. You, you know, see it as a good fit for other people, like see tragedy or war, you know, mm. just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. You know, we we took the show. I was in Iraq uh, a few weeks ago and, you know, it's just it's it's such a simple thing. But just talking to people about what they were up to before the war, mm. they all have crazy war stories. But if you don't hear that in the full context of their lives, you know, like the you know, the the tragedy of. Ahmed's brother, like, just totally gutting, it was so much, you know, just knowing how he was, how they were before war came, was so much more, um, it just it just reminds you, it puts you in that place of like, oh shit, of course, like, this is a person every bit as much as I am a person. Mm, with a full life and a full, and full hopes and dreams and ideas and, yeah, all that, all that. So... You know, to return to the, you know, this this injustice of what we're talking about in the Supreme Court ruling here in Kenya. That's a for 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 you. It's kind of this this act of not being seen or not see, being seen to exist. I mean, I forget some of the. I mean, there's just so so many nuggets to pull out of that ruling. Oh, um, they were. But one of them was just like, well, you know, the science shows it, or doesn't prove that you know people are born this way. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. There's, there's no science to prove that people are born this way. That was a good one. Uh, that there's, there was no way to prove that people in the LGBT community are being treated worse off than any other person. They, they, they even kind of tried to dispel the idea of an LGBT community because they're like, the law says any man that has sex with another man, he doesn't have to be queer. <laughs> It's very inclusive of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You could just be cruising. You could just be, um, a, you could just be <laughs> a heteronorm. Yeah. 
having sex with a man for the rest of your life, but you could you you're, you're just straight. You just you're straight having. <laughs> so you don't, ergo, you don't exist as a class that needs no. Uh, protection. No. I mean, obviously, listen, we are fighting this fight uh, still uh, in the U.S. and and um, fifty years after Stonewall, people are trying to bring it back down. But it is that it's that amazing circular logic of. You know, we never recognized you, so you're not a thing, you know, so that you don't exist in, in this in this uh, way of being a, a class. Um, so some of that is universal, just hater, hater law, mm. you know, kind mm. of around the globe. Uh, but there is a there is a, a you know, a thing here in Kenya where, you know, as you were saying, which is this premise that you reject that this is a Kenyan, you know, they were saying, well, we don't want to get out of, ahead of public opinion. and. But and and it's you know inherently Kenyan to what to discriminate. I I, I mean against gays. That's that's that the, doesn't make sense. Yeah, and but also the laws that they're upholding are are British laws. <laughs> exactly, they were all colonial laws. There was no laws before then about um, same sex relations. I mean, we're talking about we live in a country where the language, the major, the uh, the language, the Swahili, which is a national language. Kenyan, English and Swahili are the national languages. So national language Swahili, as well as many other Bantu-speaking languages, do not differentiate between he or she in language. You say, wow. they are coming, they are going. There they are. There they are. There's no, there's no gender in language. There's, when you're saying, yes, that is a girl child, but you say, mtoto wa kike. Otherwise, they're just mtoto, which is just child. Huh. And then if you're trying to, huyo wa kike, so you just, if you're trying to distinguish them, then you use the agenda to be like, no, that one, I'm calling that one. But the language itself, you don't say he came into a room, you say the person has come into the room. So in a, in a country <laughs> where there is no gender in the actual language and where the idea of being in relationships in, in different types of relationships, of women marrying women, which has happened, with um, uh, men being married to men because they were the, 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 the husbands of priests, huh. right? Or the wives of priests, rather. They, you know, there's been, there's been such fluidity in, in gender identity. There's been fluidity in, in, in how people live and love. There have been cultures. Even in Kenya, there's cultures where um, before you, your rite of passage into becoming an adult, you'll be put with the same sex so that you can learn pleasure without um, the repercussions of either getting pregnant or whatever. So you could, you know, so there were, there were cultures and customs that encourage same sex love and exploration in many different ways. Yeah. That is not spoken about anymore. <laughs> right. That's all changed. That's all changed. So even for us, um, the idea of LGBT is new because that's n that was never the language that we used because there was different language, there was different cultures, there was different traditions, you know? Um, well, so that's, that's fascinating too because obviously as, as with so many of these things, it does stem from kind of a false or what we would see as a false interpretation of history or kind of... Um, you know, emphasizing or cherry picking through your past, but but also LGBT. Like we've been having this 
very, um, you know, this is a year of remembrance and celebration in the States at the 50th anniversary. It is an American phenomenon and a, and a kind of a Western phenomenon, this style of the gay rights movement. And I wonder is, you know, is that, is that a difficulty kind of talking about these things? Because the, the goals have to be the same, right? You have to be able to live your life in peace and with protection of the law. Um, but while having to do a dance of saying like, no, actually, this is a very Kenyan thing, even though, you know, it, even though some of the language or some of the legal precedent or some of the, the strategy is, is adopted from, from other countries outside. Um, I mean, have you guys been, you know, as saying this large as artists and activists and people who are trying to see change affected, do you, is there work being done to kind of indigenize these things so that people can understand that? I think that there's been many conversations about it in many different ways. Um, but also we're talking about a very modern society now. We're talking about the Kenyans now. So even if we draw from our past, we're still really dealing with the people that we are now. And who we are now is people who have internet, who have, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who have access to the greater global world, right? And we're identifying in that nowness, you know? And reflecting who we are now and, being, and wanting to talk about who we are now. And yes, the past is important. But also, it becomes this idea of, of, of re-education of people. And not only re-education of your own generation, but of an older generation, which is, which is in itself a very tricky process because they know what they know and their, and their ideas are their ideas sometimes, you know? Um, I have to say, I, I don't know, I, sometimes I still don't feel like I'm an adult. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's always the adults. <laughs> but they always seem to be there. Yeah, <laughs> there's, the, that, there's always adults. Yeah, that goal is always, uh, the ball is always ahead of you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think that there, there's, there's conversations that are beginning to happen as a result of the case mm. that haven't been had. And people are, are beginning to look at... Um, just, I think, what has become important and how the case is being framed in a really interesting way is the right to privacy. So regardless of what you think and, and what you hold to be dear and what your tradition is and how we've identified and how colonial laws came and changed our identities, despite that, yeah. what is the right of the government to be in your bedroom, period? What is your right to privacy? What is your right to privacy? And that's like that became a really important conversation in people who, whether or not they believe or support same sex relations, could get behind. And I thought that was a really savvy way of arguing the case. Um, but I am also an onlooker on this case, and I just think it's brilliant. I thought it was really savvy, and I'm just glad that there's an, that we have a chance to appeal, and w the ruling will be appealed. I, I did. I mean, that was one of the uh, one of the piercing lines, I guess, in Rafiki is is one of the characters. I forget which one. It's just like, whatever happened to minding your own business? You know, like, which is it's 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 funny because it's such a universal, you know, that's a universal quality that people like to think about themselves and like to think about, you know, the way society should work. It's mind your own business, <laughs> you yeah. know, like let let us, you know, live live our lives and you stay out of our affairs. Um, but even so, I think there's a sense there's we're, we're social beings. We'll never mind our own business but just because we're social beings. Right. We won't. We won't. But we can keep ourselves out of people's rooms or, or bedrooms or houses. If you're not if you're not meant to be there and you're not welcome, don't be there, period. 
minding our, we will never mind our own business. <laughs> okay, so there's human nature that you'd have to <laughs> work not, against. Exactly. Um, right, but especially if you uh, are going in and you're not going to, uh, you're not going to appreciate what you find, just yeah. staying out of it. All right, so there's some hope there. Um, there's uh, a, a classic, uh, one of your hopeful endings yeah. out, out here somewhere, <clears throat> yeah. starting with an appeal uh, possibility. How is that process? When is that? When is that going to? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. I am currently in my own uh, legal battle for freedom of expression because we took the Kenya Film Classification Board to court. So this is still playing out. Yeah. Oh. So the ban was lifted for seven days, which is great because it was a precedent set about um, just about freedom of, 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 of expression. But we're, we're back in court and we're fighting for the larger freedom of expression case because the Constitution allows the freedom of expression. But the law that was used, again, in the same way with the same-sex relationships, the law that was used to ban my film was created in 1963. So it's, it's like the remnants of a colonial law. And the Constitution that was created in 2010 says very clearly everybody has a right to freedom of expression, very clearly. Yeah. And it says, um, and no one has a right to be intimidated for freedom of expression. It's just, there's never been, we've never tested it and now we're testing it. And we're trying to overturn that law or have it rewritten so that it's more reflective of the current constitution. How do you, I mean, we're having a conversation uh, that is about kind of law and activism and justice, but I mean, what you really are, among all these other things, is this incredible filmmaker who has to have some giant part of your mental capacity focused on, you know, what am I going to shoot next? How are we going to get it funded? How are we going to put it together? Um, how do you decide then to also take on a legal battle for the good of the culture? Um, I think it's it, it wasn't first I had this phenomenal lawyer who was just who was very clear she's like this is in this is absolutely she says today it's going to be they're gonna say it's because you're promoting gayism, which is a thing. Gayism. Gayism. I, that is not that a is word a Kenyan word. That is a Kenyan word. Of all the isms. Yes. You had to walk into that one. All yes. right. So I've been accused of promoting gayism. So apart from from, that's what they're saying today, but 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 my my lawyer was like, what what are they going to say tomorrow? What like how are they going to change the rules? Because the rules keep on they keep on saying they keep on saying um, norms and values, Kenyan norms and values. But there's nowhere norms and values are defined. So who's who's setting these norms and values parameters? So that's when we decided we were just going to and and also the the head of the film classification board, he's just not. He's a he's a he's an interesting character. So before my film was banned, another film was banned, Stories of Our Lives. And between Stories of Our Lives and, and mine, six cartoons were banned huh. for promoting homosexuality or gayism again. And, and a podcast was banned, right? Spread? No, it wasn't. Oh no. Okay. It wasn't banned. The the spread is still on. Oh it is. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and I, thought, I, th I thought we could get these podcasts into the game, nah, but no. <laughs> films, films are the ones that come for Films and TV. Yeah. But, but also, apart from films and TV, so he banned six cartoons, including Hey Arnold. I guess it's the uh, phallic-shaped head. Very gay. It's gayism. Very, uh, very gayistic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they approach their yeah. children's cartoons gayistically. Yes. Um, okay. And then he said um, there was a picture of, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a picture of two male lions mounting 
that was uh, circulated and he commented on that picture and he said that the lions needed counseling. They needed to be separated. Oh. I, and I couldn't make this up. And then he said, they must have seen a tourist couple in the national park and that's where they got that behavior from. Uh, you know, the more you talk, the more it sounds like this man might be a gift to your cause. Right? No, but he's also, he's widely followed. Oh, well, shit. Um, oh. I mean, we, we're always, of course, waiting for that moment where the ridiculousness, you know, of, of, of these dark forces will just sort of expose themselves. and. But they have, they're collapse. exposed. They are exposed. They are exposed. They're not hiding. That's, that is incredible. I love this. Um, I did not see that in all the, you know, sort of tourism videos they're playing on Kenya Airways. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> the homosexual lions. To, you know, white uh, gay men coming and... <laughs> teaching of, the lions. <laughs> teaching the lions how to... How not to procreate. <laughs> I know, and there's so much that can be explained, like sort of, you know, plummeting birth rates among uh, endangered <laughs> animals and... Um, uh, God... Us, us tourists have brought a lot of well maybe you can bring the counselors maybe you can bring the counselors as well the people because i'd like to see the people who go in and try and counsel the lions <laughs> that is true yes yeah. you could definitely uh if there were some choice uh sort of decision makers who you could volunteer for that job yeah exactly <laughs> exactly you know you've been really good and strong on this anti-lgbt <laughs> thing maybe you would like to go into uh the in, serengeti the, the serengeti and counsel some lions for a little bit <laughs> Uh, it's, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm just thrilled that is so, uh, it's so evocative of, um, the absolute idiocracy that, um, that does seem to just pop up every once in a while. And the, the fight does not end. I mean, this particular legal fight was three years, even before the Supreme Court. Now you're saying there's appeal. And I mean, Rafiki was banned in what, 2010, 2000? No, Rafiki no. was banned last year. Or, last year. Sorry. Mm, but the constitution was in 2010. Okay. Mm. So, and how, like, how long will you fight this? Like, how? Well, we'll, we'll fight it until we have an answer. Okay. <laughs> I wish I could see, show your face on the podcast, but you definitely made a, this, this fight is not going to end the way they think it is. Well, it's uh, just, it's, I mean, well, it just, it seems the constitution is, I just, I don't know. Maybe, I'm, I maybe, maybe it's that absurd, naive optimist. But I'm just like, it's plain as day. Read the Constitution. It says freedom of expression. It doesn't say freedom of expression until two girls are kissing on screen. It doesn't say that. <laughs> right. In fact, it actually says what, what, what cannot, what doesn't qualify under freedom of expression. And it's um, instigation of violence, instigation of terrorism. Which, but, by the way, is what these rulings also do. Leave the door open for... I mean, there's. Just, I mean, even in Rafiki, there's five. I mean, it's it's brutal. It's, yeah, it's not it's not a walk in the park. Yeah. I'm not saying this is an easy love life. I'm saying, and the really the conversation that I was trying to have in Rafiki is sometimes it's 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 all based. There's this beautiful Lucille Clifton poem, and in it she says, "What have you ever traveled towards more than your own safety?" And it was just such a provocative thought, because people don't travel towards anything more than their own safety. And these girls were. Right. That's the choice that you have to make. Yeah. Love or safety. Love or safety. What do you have? <coughs> it's that toddy. Yeah, it's getting it's it good. Does. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. It's like, yeah. That 
sort of demanding more of your drinks yeah is something that i feel um i feel like i get a lot of when i leave the states they're just like we need more flavor you know <laughs> like we need more stuff happening in this um and i'm i'm all for it I think we should hold our drinks to a higher standard <laughs> of like interest um so uh what else are you doing um in the film world i mean you have with all the success you've had here, you've also been able to reach back uh, to Hollywood, to LA, because you had you you had studied at USC, right? UCLA or UCLA? Oh, dude, dude, dude. I mean, I was. <laughs> Roads and Kingdoms is a very it's a very Bruin heavy organization, so <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna hear it for that. Um, a million apologies, <laughs> uh, UCLA. Um, but then you came back and really made your career here in Kenya how do you what's next for you uh here or there and how you you know how you kind of balance those two um it's super exciting um at the moment that we I am co-writing a series with uh, one of my favorite people in the world her name is Nnedi Okarafor she's a novelist and we're co-writing um a series that is an adaptation of our favorite author Octavia Butler Wow. And we're doing Wild Seed. And Wild Seed is our favorite <laughs> book. So it's just superlatives it's just all like the way down. Everything is just like great. And then the greatest piece of all, all of it, the, like the cherry, not even the cherry, just like the whole top layer <laughs> is that we're working with Viola Davis's company. Juvie to develop it, and we're developing it for Amazon. That's the project. That's right, because yeah. you had mentioned that you were doing something with her production company. So yeah. that's it, and you're yeah. going to be doing it for Amazon. Yeah. And you talk about it with such joy, but writing is pain. Is it? I, <laughs> how are you? I feel like writing saves my life. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like writing saves my life. You're you're because one of those joyous writers. It's just uh, because the world doesn't make sense, and a long-lived person does. I'm just like yes. They never die. That makes sense. But then Trump doesn't. You know what I mean? Right. So I think that writing saves my life. Writing is the place that I have. Um, we create worlds. We create our ideas of what we can be and, and who we can be. We create how we want to vanquish our bad guys. You know what I mean? Like, we, we get to leave it there and then come back and try and make sense of this world again. But this this world doesn't make sense. So, um, yeah, writing is is truly life. <laughs> so that's it. Damn. Well, you make it sound very inviting. People should write or find their joy. That's my joy. Some way of understanding the world. All right. Well, and also writing collaboratively. Oh, it's the best. You know, based on all of these, it sounds like you have a lot of pillars of. Uh, just kind of uh, affection that are running through that project, which um, that can help you get through those yeah. uh, those more difficult blank page moments. Yeah. Um, so when, what's the... Well, is, I have no idea. We're no still, idea. That, no, we're still very much in the early stages and just super excited to be part of the project. Yeah. Um, but I've also been attached to a universal film um, uh, called The Thing About Jellyfish. And it, it stars Millie Bobby Brown in it. Okay. And she's amazing. Wow. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that, that pans out as well. But, you know. And w when you're thinking about these projects, do you think about kind of, uh, you know, Hollywood and, and Nairobi? 
the other East Coast. The other East Coast. That's right. Uh, I mean, do you do you think about them um, almost like uh, they're opposed to each other, or that they they work against each other? Do you have to choose one over the other? No, I live in Kenya, and I work where I work, but I live in Kenya. That's how I see it. Is there a part of you that, you know, obviously the opportunities are immense and your mental life sounds like it's, it's, it's lived across all continents, right? I mean, you, you're, you're talking about the collaborators you have, which who are not Kenyans uh, uh, for sure. But how do you, is there some part of you that also wants to be able to build up the Kenyan film industry in a way, I mean, obviously by by protecting it against uh, <laughs> the <laughs> film classification board. That's a huge mitzvah. Yeah. But, um, but how does that, I mean, how's Kenyan film going and, and you know, how possible is it for the next person who could step into uh, a career like yours? How possible is that? I think it's a lot more possible now than before. Um, for the first time in a long time, in, in a large part due to a company called One Fine Day, um, uh, there has been at least one feature film produced every year, at almost for the last couple of years. And that's amazing for, for a country that never had any films coming out, you know. And that means that there have been filmmakers that have been made, there have been cinematographers that have been trained. There's like, it's just like it's so layered. It's so, so layered. And what I think is so great about having watched the films that have been coming out from Kenya over the last, even the last five, six years, is that there's a very, there's such an, indi- there's, we're properly indie. We're not like pop culture. We're like indie. Yeah. You know what I mean? We have really interesting thoughts and how we talk about them through either fantasy or through drama or through, I just, I just think that we have, a, or even just through like an idea of a, a child's imagination and the supernatural has just been the most fascinating thing. Um, so it, I think Kenya in itself has a really unique filmmaking voice. So not to throw too much shade, but looking at Kenyan film versus some other places on the continent where it's like a lot of kung fu, hmm. you're feeling you're feeling a depth of soul I, in the I films am. that come out here. Yeah, and character. Yeah, and like and and a really like auteur like uh, spirit and, and 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 vision in the films, you know. Um, it's just, it's something to be so proud of. It's just, I'm so excited. And the way that I want to help is by trying to create more content on this side um, and more TV, especially, because I think that's a really great way to learn on the job as well. Mm, right, to be, to kind of step up into feature films, also probably to, to train and condition a viewing audience mm. that they can get these kind of experiences out of uh, I think moving the, pictures. I think the audience is trained. They're ready. They have been. Yeah. I think we underestimate audiences because otherwise, I mean, even just very simply, um, Nollywood, the distribution of Nollywood films is far flung. <laughs> it's just yeah. like there's people watching Nollywood films everywhere. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like there's people, like there's, there's such, like the reach of different things is so far and wide that I think that it's it's not surprising anymore. The things that people have access to, if, even when they don't choose to, is 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 just it's 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 so varied and and mostly because we're on the internet, so we'll see things that we wouldn't have seen necessarily, and um, 
we're no longer in like tiny villages, even though we want to try and keep our tweeps like super local. Things like you can't stop. Yeah. You can't stop what diversity looks like and what uh, multicultural people and feelings and ideas are like. That that I just there's no space for that. Um, and I mean, yeah, there's enough of an audience. I'm not worried about the audience. The audience is there. Tell me the um, to 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 get to to get to that hopeful hopeful ending. Um, Tell me about, and I guess, you know, for the listeners too, what Afrofuturism means. I mean, it's been uh, in in some of your work, uh, and I think you're a practitioner and supporter of the idea of it at a high level. What what exactly is it, and what, what should people know about it? Well, I think that um, there have been many different definitions of Afrofuturism. I think it was first coined by a man called Mark Derry, and it was more about speculative fiction, uh, science fiction, uh, mythical realism, um, anything that had to do with either black people or people from the diaspora, that was what was called, called Afrofuturism. Um, and there's, uh, like, one of my co-writers, Nnedi Okarafo, coined the term African futurism, which mm. was a bit of a departure. And really that was stories and, and, and fantasy that stemmed from Africa first as well, um, and, and creating a new space for that and, and, and seeing that kind of work. Because it, it, a lot of it crystallized with Black Panther. And people are like, oh my gosh, there is Afrofuturism. So Afrofuturism and Black Panther become synonymous, and, and as it should be. Yeah. But um, what else? I mean. And, but I think that there's so many, there's other conversations. And I think that uh, Nnedi Okarafo has started pointing at the other conversations that we can have about African futurism, as well as Afrofuturism, and where the two meet, you know. Because there is a complexity um, about just identity that I don't think that we completely unpack. And I think until we do and have a firm understanding and, em- and embracing of all, then it, can, it, 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 it will feel um, exclusive. And it's not that, you know? Exclusive in the, in the sense that, you know, in the coming African century, yeah. there are gifts for the entire world. Yeah. Like there are ways of, of structuring our societies that... Yeah. Uh, that could be demonstrative to help us clear up some of our own bullshit. Yeah, and also <laughs> in in a really super real way. And I know people keep saying it as a, oh, Africa's the future. But Africa actually, with its population growth, just with really, really basic things, you know? I, I read like a really absurd statistic, like uh, one in five people will be African by the eight, by the year 2050. You know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. like the number of Africans are coming. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. We, we're the youngest. <laughs> we're the youngest continent. Literally the youngest continent. Because uh, with 77% of the population below the age of like 30. Wow. 33, I think is the number. My goodness. It's just, it's a young, it's a young continent. And I think people need to start acknowledging that and, and thinking about Africa in a, in a very clear futuristic way. Um, but apart from that, the space that I have, I have, I am growing into, that I am willingly growing into as well, and and trying to define as this idea of Afro bubblegum. Right. So you have a media company. Well, it's not a media company. I think it's become more than a. I mean, yes, we do produce Afro bubblegum content. That's good because media is a rough business. Yeah, <laughs> but it's rather a, a description of fun, fierce, and frivolous African art. Because otherwise we're 
only considered remorseful, right? <laughs> not remorseful enough, mind you. <gasps> exactly. But, um, and when we're not remorseful enough, maybe we're Afro bubblegum. <laughs> that's so fun, fierce, and frivolous. Yes. How does that? How does that? So, that sounds great. Sign me up. Okay. So I, I, I am of the theory that there's always been Afro bubblegum art. There's always been fun, fierce, and frivolous expressions of joy through art and through tradition. And I have many. There's many, there's many traditions. Um, um, there's many festivals that celebrate joy in really interesting ways. There's different types of art. There's magazines. There's um, photo comics that date back to the 50s that, that have like um, superheroes in spandex and taken pictures of and they're like, you know, with karate chop <laughs> motions, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there's always been existed frivolous ways of Africans seeing themselves, but we don't see that anymore as much. So I wanted to create a space for us to see frivolous art and fun art and some things that are weird and obscure um, and say this is what we've always been because otherwise, and if we truly believe that seeing is believing, and we don't see images of joy of ourselves, right? then how do we believe that we deserve joy? And how do we believe that we deserve more than what we're given? So I've been a firm advocate of joyful images of, of black people, of people of color, of Africans, just so we can reclaim joy as an act of resistance and as a tool to see past all the fight and past all the struggle, what is our vision for ourselves? What, how do we, when we stop fighting, when the day comes, hallelujah, amen, when, the, when we stop fighting, what, is, what are we left with? What is the image? So we need to see joyful images of ourselves so that we can rem remember what we're doing. That's fascinating. I mean, especially, you know, not to call out some of my own bloodline, but you can look at, you know, the past few centuries of history and see that Northern Europe has had this incredibly outsized uh, effect and, and dominion over so many parts of the world. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of that blood in me. It's a pretty fucking dour people, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'll say it just so other people don't have to. There's a lot of, like, stone-faced, not, like, super exuberant. I mean, all of the structures, the religions, the yeah, the Yantalon in, in Denmark, all of these things are meant to drag you back to... To suffer. A, yes, to this, like, stoicism of just... And, and that's the world that they've created, essentially. Like, you know, that in all of its different ways, that DNA, that dourness is kind of floating around the planet and, and getting people wrapped up in it and they're hard to untangle from their own history and what they should do so i love that idea of like you know what like let's have another axis here yeah like joy could be an actual cultural absolute value that can be exported yeah um and can be seen and can be seen and can be experienced and has always been there it's not new we're not suddenly joyous and also not in that super patronizing way that people go or, or visitors come and say, oh, they're poor, but they're so happy. Not in that kind of like <laughs> substandard joy way. No, I reject that joy. Just, I have a plastic bottle. And, and look at how happy. No, yeah, yeah. no, 
that is condescending joy. Right. That is that is diminishing joy. That is not what we're talking about. You're talking about joy that is is a, that as a source you, of power. As a source of power, but also as a source of culture, as a source of reference, as a sort of, source of historical context. Afro bubblegum. Afro bubblegum. We're making that a thing. You are making that a thing. And yes, I am trying. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're, we'll be we'll be there with you. Thanks. Um, thank you so much for the dawa. Anytime. For bringing me to Leafy Karen. Yes. Uh, and for being on the show. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And you. I'm really, really glad to be on it. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff was our producer on this episode. Taffy Mukanyazi, our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle was our editor. Music by Dan the Automator, episode illustration by Daisy D, show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Mac Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Update on the ever-shining career of Wanuri Kahu, the guest of this episode. This autumn, it was announced that she would direct Paramount's film adaptation of The Hate You Give. The artist, still at it, making art, cannot wait to see what she comes up with. Next on this feed, we are back in Havana with Afro-Cuban artist, cook, and activist Nancy Sapero. All new episode coming Sunday. We will meet you there. <laughs>